Have you been to the place where the fireweed grows? The caribou roam and the northern lights glow. Come learn from the people who call this place home. This is Denali 360. Welcome to Denali 360. I am your host, Nova, and today I have the pleasure of having Will Forsberg as my guest today. He originally came from Ventura, California, graduated in Santa Barbara in environmental studies. And at that time in the 70s, his professor said, well, if you want to go see Alaska, now's the time. They're building that pipeline. (laughs) So Will has come up over the subsequent years that he's lived here. He's had a dog freight team that has helped freight equipment up the mountain for climbers. He'll describe that a little bit more. He has run the Yukon Quest. He has uh, a cabin that was near Chris McCandless and the bus. So we have uh, all sorts of things that we get to cover with Will today. So Will, it's a pleasure to have you today. Well, my pleasure too, (laughs) to have you here. Thanks, I'm in your lovely log home looking out over Stampede Road and it's a beautiful view, so thanks for having me here. Well, I'm happy to have you and it's my favorite time of year, it's fall. All my birch trees are yellow now. (laughs) And they're beautiful. Yeah. So tell us, Will, tell us a little bit about what brought you here from California. Well, I was interested in traveling I traveled in uh, Europe and South America or Central America and thought, well, why not go north? Uh, partly because uh, when I was in college, uh, professors I had in uh, environmental studies said, if you ever want to see Alaska, you should probably see it now because the pipeline is going to ruin it. So I came up in 74 in the summer. I lined up a job at the Park Hotel. Uh, I had to be here a certain day in July. So we actually drove a Volkswagen Beetle up to part of Canada, Prince Rupert I think it was, got on the ferry without the car, (laughs) pulled into Ketchikan, we wanted to stay one night in Ketchikan and see it, couldn't find anywhere to camp, you know it's either you're down in the flat city or it's mountains all around it, so my friend Jerry said well let's just knock on somebody's door and ask if we could sleep in their yard, put our tents up. I thought he was crazy but he knocked on somebody's door and sure enough they said okay, and it turned out it was a, an Alaskan woman who owned a Chinese restaurant, and it was her birthday. Oh my goodness. So it was like the perfect first night in Alaska. Had a birthday party with a woman who had a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> I continued on the next day on the ferry and uh, eventually got to Haines and hitchhiked from Haines with a couple in an old pickup truck into Fairbanks and then arrived on the train here at McKinley Park at that time it was. Oh my gosh, and the Park Hotel in those days was located in the park, which now there's not really in the park proper until you get to Cantishna hotels there. But in the early days, even in my time, when I first came in the early 2000s, the Park Hotel was still there, basically where the Murray Science Center is now. Yeah, and the train station was right in front of the hotel, just a little ways away. So you could walk right up, find my job there at the hotel, and I got situated in the wolf den. It was this cabin up in the meadow with six guys on little bunk beds. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that afternoon I had free time because I wasn't going to start work till the next day. Walked right down to the Horseshoe Lake Trail and hiked down and here was a bull moose standing in the middle of the lake browsing and sticking his head in the water and I thought, man, this is quite a place. <laughs> yeah, that had my interest right there. 
So I worked there for about a month. I had three different jobs, none of which was that great, but it was okay. I, two days a week I was washing buses uh, with Ken Carley, who's a fellow that lives here still, and got that little bit of experience, maybe eight days of parking the buses after we'd wash them, and the boss offered me a job one day a week driving a bus. I mean, that's how, how easy it was at that time. No training at all other than parking a bus in a parking lot. But, as fate would have it, I went out to Cantishna for the weekend with some people I had met in Cantwell. And of course, Cantwell's a small town. It was owned by a fellow named Herman, I think his name was. And he had a wild game feed for his birthday party. So I went down there and I got to sample all this moose meat, caribou meat, sheep, all kinds of fish. And there was some other young people there. I was only 24 at that time. Three young women who had hitchhiked up here from Detroit. <laughs> so one of the, one of the fellows I met had, uh, had been out in Cantishna before helping a miner. And he talked those three women into getting on the bus and going out and getting a tour of the, of the area. So I went along on that <laughs> and uh, sent a note back in on, uh, with the bus on Monday, I think. Sorry, I've run into some opportunities here I can't pass up. <laughs> you know, see you next year, maybe. <laughs> and we ended up walking down to Glacier City, which is an old mining town. It was the head of uh, the Bear Paw River, where Glacier Creek comes in. And this was as far as far up the river as the little riverboat, flat-bottom riverboats could go. Mostly just propelled by brute force up to there. And so this little city developed there. There were still a lot of buildings standing at that time. Uh, and one old miner who was living in one of the cabins. So we walked down there and uh, our friend had assured us we didn't have to take that much food because the river was full of grayling. <laughs> well, no, once we got there, there wasn't a grayling to be found. <laughs> I think we ended up eating squirrels for dinner or something. Oh, no. But that really gave me a taste of the backcountry of what it's like off the road and was really fascinating to me. And then spending time uh, in Cantishna where the gold miners were still working at that time, you know, it was a big deal on Moose Creek. Just above the airstrip there was a big mining operation. Uh, Dan Ashbrook was there involved in that. And I'm sure a lot of locals here knew. And Roberta. Wilson, who later built the Cantishna Roadhouse out there. So this is some of the first people I met in Alaska, and very interesting people, bush people out, you know, kind of doing the real old-time Alaskan things. Wow. And we got we got caught up in a rainstorm there and got delayed, and the two-story cabin that's still standing out there is actually on parkland, I guess, but. Uh, a mining family was living in that with their three or four kids and it was at that time it was in good enough shape that it was usable that way so they let us sleep downstairs I think there were seven of us so <laughs> they were very hospitable <laughs> uh, and I remember uh, having a big game of strip strip poker <laughs> <laughs> we, we were just kidding around about this but uh, it ended up with a uh, one couple lost lost the game and 
They said, well, a deal's a deal. <laughs> Stripped their clothes off and ran outside. And the, the deal was they had to run around the cabin and come back in in the rain. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I just remember the little kids were so amazed and laughing about this. <laughs> I said, oh, that's, this is how Alaskan families have fun. <laughs> how long did uh, people mine Moose Creek area before that stopped? Oh, I think it was about 85, maybe, 86, before they finally sort of brought it to a halt. There were a lot of claims there on all those creeks out there. And I, I don't know that the Park Service has gotten a hold of all of them even yet. Some of them turned into small businesses, like the Cantishna Roadhouse was on a mining claim. And I'm, I'm sure the, uh, the other one down the creek further, I forget the name of. There's uh, Camp Denali and North Face and Denali Backcountry Lodge. Yeah, yeah, the Backcountry Lodge is the one I was thinking of. And of course, Camp Denali was there first, uh, up on the hillside. So, you know, I, because of, of having met all these people and had a good time. I ended up coming back uh, in 75, 76, 77. Uh, eventually in 75 when I came back, I couldn't work at the park because I had quit on them. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> wow, you know, <laughs> big loss. But uh, you know, the park hotel was an interesting place. The old hotel, the, the really old hotel had burned down just two years before. And so the, the hotel that many of us had, had seen uh, wasn't the original. The original was a, a building that was an R&R center for the Army during the war. Uh, you know, I think some of the parts of it were still there, but uh, living there was interesting and working there at that old hotel. It was only there a month, but I kind of wonder because Hillary Clinton worked there pretty close to when I was there, maybe a year or two before. And I think she lived in the dorm. So I wondered if I, when I got a dorm room there, I was looking at all the walls for a heart on the wall with the Hillary Loves Bill or something <laughs> written on it. <laughs> but uh, she didn't stay there very long either, I guess. Uh, when I came back in 75, I drove up in a van and we got a job at Krabby's Hotel, which is now McKinley Village Hotel down there. And it was very small operation. And he was expanding out to Kantishna. He had purchased a five acre parcel with a log cabin that Grant Pearson had built. Now, Grant Pearson was one of the uh, superintendents of the park. I believe in the 40s, he was quite a guy. He had climbed McKinley, the first trip, that, or the first climb that did both summits in one climb. So uh, this friend that was with me, we went out and managed the North Face Lodge, it was called. And at that time, it was quite really small operation. He only had 30 guests out of the 90 days, or 30 days that he had guests out of the 90 that we were there. So we had a great time just exploring that whole area meeting this, more of the miners. Oh, wow. But I just remember, that's when I also met the Camp Denali owners, uh, Celia Hunter and Jenny Woods. Two women started that, uh, and they didn't really appreciate having this new business right below them, mostly because Krabby advertised that he had electricity. <laughs> 
which out there meant that he had to have a generator. And I gotta say, I hated the noise of that generator as much as anybody, <laughs> but it was part of the deal. <laughs> the big old one-cylinder Holt generator with no, when we first got there, no muffler. Oh my goodness. So it was horrible. <laughs> I remember Celia Hunter came down one day and she brought her handyman down with a pipe wrench and said, he's going to help you hook up the, the muffler on this darn thing. <laughs> May I help you, neighbor? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, we got that done and then finally got a building built around the generator too, so it wasn't quite as noisy for him. So that was my first job that I enjoyed in Alaska out there. Kantishna is such a beautiful place, just the, you know, the view of the mountain. and Things were a little looser then, so I could pack the guests in my van and we'd drive up to Wonder Lake to see the sunset. The, the ranger at that time didn't mind at all. And then, of course, guys got to make some money, so went to work on the pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> The thing your professor said was going to ruin Alaska. Yep, this is going to ruin Alaska. <laughs> and it certainly had a big effect on Fairbanks. That's where I worked out of the laborers union there. Fairbanks was a tiny little sleepy town until the pipeline started up. What year did it start? 74. 74. Yeah, and then 75 really got going. So I went up, got a job in night shift all the way up at Coldfoot. Ooh. And, you know, they, they had man camps every 50 miles or so along the line. So I worked at two or three camps, and I think I was only making about 11 an hour. But at that time, that was pretty good. And I got through the season of work there. I didn't want to work through the whole winter, but maybe quitting for Thanksgiving, I think I came back to town. Made more money than I'd ever thought about before. In fact, I think I paid more in taxes than I had ever made in a year. <laughs> but this this helped me realize, boy, you can work in Alaska the long hours, especially in the summer, take the winters off. And really, that's what I've done every year of my life. <laughs> and you learned that at such a young age. Yeah, I learned that when I was 24, 25, yeah, that this is po a possibility. And uh, being in a union, you even are uh, accruing benefits for the future, you don't, but you don't have to work year-round, so it was nice. Perfect. Tell me what brought you to settle here. Well, going back to that first year in 74, before I left the, the zoo, the zoo was the, the eating uh, dining hall uh, for the hotel workers, somebody put a sign up that said, uh, Sail the Virgin Islands. So I went to a meeting about this with a little slideshow and met all these uh, local residents who were going to go down and rent two sailboats <laughs> and sail around the Virgin Islands for a couple weeks. So I said, hey, that sounds great. I'll meet you there. Where are we going to meet up? And uh, the guy organizing this uh, was named Keitho, Keitho My Hills, and his wife Cindy. They said, well, we're going to meet at Disney World. 10 a.m. on a certain day. Okay, I'll see you there. And incredibly, I did not communicate with them again <laughs> for several months. You know, and I went on down to California, worked a little more to get money for the sailing trip. Got a ride with the woman who was driving to Florida from L.A. 
and got there that morning and there they all were. <laughs> and Keith said, you know, you're the one guy I wasn't sure would show up because <laughs> all the rest had been talking to each other the whole time. <laughs> That's perfect. But meeting those people and getting to know them, boy, all of a sudden I had some good friends here. You know, together with the miners I met at Cantishna. So it just seemed natural to come back and get to know the area better. I liked it a lot because it's way less crowded than where I'd grown up, as you can imagine, you know, north of LA along the coast there is a whole totally different story than up here. And uh, just felt like there was more room to do things and not so many rules to have to abide by. So that's what brought me back originally and then able to find jobs that I could do in the summer. At first I traveled in the winter and didn't stay the winter because I didn't really have a suitable cabin or anything until 78 when I spent my first winter in Anchorage. <laughs> I rented a big house on DeLong Lake which is uh, kind of off Spinard Road I think right by the airport. And this house belonged to a, to a couple who had been up here for years, huge house, they'd raised their family there, but now all the kids were gone and they were gonna move to Hawaii. So this was a big enough house, I mean, it must have had five bedrooms. Rented that for the winter and had friends from, from Denali come down. But the thing about Anchorage is, and I think Tom Walker would agree with this, it rains in January. <laughs> Everything turns to ice. And I'd rather be up here where it just gets cold and stays cold and you have snow. So came back up that following summer and um, met Charlie Travers. Now he's a fellow who was one of the three who floated down the Nenana River before the highway was opened and they each staked out a parcel of federal land. So they each got their 80 acres right in the canyon where Glitter Gulch is now. So we had Jonesville, Traverse Town, and Chalen Harris's property where the chalets are now. And Charlie was starting to subdivide. So talked him into selling me three acres of land, which is now covered by the Crow's Nest. Oh. The Crow's Nest restaurant. And right next to that, people who've been there know there's a, a building that's the office building for the cabins and the restaurant there. I recently went up there to look at that and that was the house I built there, you know, 1979 and 80. And it still had the same roofing on the back <laughs> after 40 some years. Mineral paper roofing had somehow survived that long. So that was my first place to live. I met a wonderful woman there named Linda Johnson at the time and we got together. We both wanted to do some dog mushing. I wasn't sure I wanted to get into that at the time because people told me it'll take over your whole life. You know, it's a big expense and takes all your time. So I started out on doing little ski trips, but boy, I started noticing these dog teams passing me up. <laughs> I remember Ford Reeves had dogs and lived in that same area. He passed me up with a load of stuff and no pack on his back, no skis, you know, just moving 10 miles an hour while I'm struggling. 
So that led me sort of to meet Linda at the time because she was taking care of people's dogs. Uh, people would want to leave that had a dog team. Maybe they'd go outside for a month and she would take care of their dogs. I believe she had Ford's dog team when we met and there was enough of them that I could put together a little team too. And took a trip out the Yannert to, uh, what's the creek out there, Edmund Creek or something. Edgar Creek and there was an open cabin there and that's when I kind of fell in love with dog mushing and with Linda <laughs> <laughs> and she'd been doing it for years because she'd been up here since the late 60s and at that time they didn't have a kennel manager so she volunteered to, to be the kennel manager so the rangers wouldn't have to get up and go check on the dogs <laughs> A lot of people don't realize that the park, they don't allow motorized vehicles. And so the dogs are our rangers. They patrol the park in the winter primarily because they've been crossing the snow. And I think they do a little training in the summer, more for demonstrations these days. And so yeah. uh, I love the idea that Linda was the first kennel manager, basically. That's right. Yeah, she well, maybe not the first, but there was a period of time there where they didn't have a paid kennel manager. Of course, Previous, the rangers were with the dogs constantly. You know, when Harry Karsten started it, that's the way they patrolled the park because snow machines didn't even exist then. So they had cabins all over the park. Uh, you know, we see the ones along the road, but there's also backcountry cabins along the Stampede Trail and down uh, even out of Cantwell on Windy Creek. Well, so Linda and I just started going exploring the park and it's it's tough mushing because you don't have snow machines in the park allowed to make trails for you. So we kind of, I should say, I learned the hard way. You got to put on some snowshoes and walk in front of the dog team. You've got to have a calm dog team that will just follow you and not run over you or take off chasing the wrong way after something. And uh, just did a lot of explorations and eventually hooked up with Dennis Kogel, who at that time had the concession for dog freighting in the park and was just expanding into doing dog tours with people. That was called Denali Dog Tours. So he would get people from literally all over the world who were interested in mushing and wanting to see the park in the winter. I think the first trip I did with him was a group of French, yeah, they were all French people, with one lady from England who was the interpreter <laughs> and we went out in November all the way to Wonder Lake which is found out later is way too early the snow wasn't that great and there wasn't any snow down below Isleson on the rocks you know on the gravel bars or very little so Dennis said well we're just gonna have to go on the road <laughs> and everybody knows that section of road is very windy and we found ourselves just praying that the dogs didn't try to take a shortcut because we're, and Jeff King was on this trip also so that was when I first got together with him and uh, so one dog team leading would be several hundred yards ahead and would have already gotten around one of these tight corners with a deep valley in between and I start seeing my leader looking over there like oh we just run right across this you know, and there was ice on the road. I don't know how we survived that because uh, without getting pulled in 
on an inside corner and tumbling off. And these French people barely spoke English, but it was still fun. We got to a government draw cabin. I think there was, oh, there must have been 10 of us trying to sleep in that cabin that's only 12 by 14 or something. <laughs> and then finally to Wonder Lake with them and back. Well, this is a pretty good way. You can have a dog team and make a little money, maybe. How long did that trip take? That trip we did 10 days. 10 days. Yep. Up and back. And I learned from that, you don't go on the road <laughs> that much. You know, parts of the trail is on the road. But, and you wait until there's some snow. That's <laughs> the best thing. Because it's hard to put your brake down into gravel. <laughs> I remember trying to trying to have dinner and, and talk to the French people, and I asked, uh, "Well, what do you all do for work?" And one woman said, "Oh, I am nurse." Oh, what kind of nurse are you? And she said, "I eat the babies." <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think it was Jeff said, "Well, how many babies do you eat in a shift?" <laughs> And of course she meant, I feed the babies, I take, take care of babies. <laughs> and then uh, after we were getting close to the end of dinner, I think I said, trying to show off that I could speak French too, I said, je suis plein, which I thought meant I am full, you know, like the glass is full, I am full. Well, they all burst out laughing because in the French uh, vernacular, that means I'm pregnant. <laughs> So that was my first experience of uh, taking tour groups out. And Linda and I worked together well, so we kind of got a deal with Dennis. He wanted to start racing. He wanted to run the Iditarod and some other races. He said, why don't you guys do the tours in the gear hall, you know, for a couple winters, see what you think of it. So we had our first client on our own, I think in maybe 81. He was a, a, an Englishman who uh, played the organ at a church and also taught music, I think. It was a church school, maybe. And we were staying at East Fork Cabin one night and little shrews were running around, which all the cabins have mice and shrews, of course. Well, Linda was like an animal magnet. She could catch any animal you can think of or they would just come to her. So she caught a shrew and just held it up to show to this fellow Chris and he really leaned back for that. He said, oh, aren't they the most, one of the most savage animals? I said, well, I guess if you're a fly, <laughs> but it's a tiny shrew. And he was just amazed Linda could catch this shrew, just you know, crawling on the floor quickly and grab it. And we didn't want it crawling on us, sleeping on the floor, so we put it in a bucket. And Linda made up a little bed for it with paper towel and a little thing of water. So it was fine. And, uh, but we could hear it walking around in that bucket. And its toes would kind of clatter on the bottom of the bucket. And the, the guy from England is in, you know, plays piano said, Well, we'll have to call him Shrubert. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I said, What about Shrewman? <laughs> So I remember that as one of one of our favorite trips. He was the first guy that we took and let take a team on his own. Coming back in, we went way out in the park. I forget if it was Wonder Lake or not, but 
On the way back in, uh, we're coming close to the sanctuary and on the ridge to the south, Linda spotted something moving and it was a line of wolves, about seven wolves. And we got the binoculars out and this fellow Chris was able to see wolves and actually heard them howl then that night. And we dropped him off after the trip ended and he said, boy, I, I can die in peace now because I've seen wolves in the wild. He was so excited about that. What a trip of a lifetime you offered him. Yeah, and it, yeah, you don't realize how moving this is for some people just to see wilderness like this. You know, and you get used to it yourself. And then you go, geez, you're, you're actually going to pay me to <laughs> go mushing with you? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so somewhere along the way uh, came an interest in the Yukon Quest. Well, that's right. You know, first we... We did the tours together, we got enough dogs that we could take a bunch of people out. And the Yukon Quest started, I think, in 84, 85, something like that. And uh, you know, our friend Jeff King wanted to run it, and Dennis was thinking about it, Dennis Kogel. And we so were sort of interested, but then we had this, this other thing going with the, with the tours and the freight hauling. And when you're doing freight hauling, we were taking stuff from Wonder Lake, which had been pre-positioned there in the summer. It was actually stored in the what was then the basement of the ranger station at Wonder Lake. And uh, so so there was waiting for us so we could mush out from Wonder Lake. It was uh, maybe 20 miles out to Cash Creek and up to the Muldrow Glacier. And at that time, Muldrow Glacier was quite stable. Not like now when it's a mess. But. So we would get up there and uh, we couldn't run the dogs directly down because it was too rocky there when the wind would blow the snow away right at top. So we'd roll these buckets down and uh, then they'd go to the bottom, stack them up, and then we managed to get the dogs down. And on our last trip, you know, after going up McGonagall Pass maybe eight or nine times, then we'd take the dogs down on the glacier and go four miles up the glacier. So we had big, strong dogs. We didn't have race dogs at all. These were big, you know, way bigger than what most people would race in the Quest. But we still thought, oh, maybe they could race. So I thought, well, why don't we take a trip and see how they compare and see, see the, you know, long trip. This was something Lyndon wanted to do for years. Just go out and go as far as you can. And uh, the obvious place to start that was the Iditarod Trail because it actually starts uh, you know, right down to Wasilla. And before the Iditarod, they have the Iron Dog, which is the snow machine race to Nome. So we had a perfect trail in mid-February. You know, you don't want to be in the trail while the Iron Dog's going on, because they'd go at 100 miles an hour, may not see you. But right after that started, we went down and, and followed it. And right up through Rainy Pass, and. Uh, couldn't find the trail, the dog trail over Rainy Pass, so we went around through Hell's Gate, I think it's called, on the <laughs> the upper Kuskokwim River. Added an extra 40 miles to the length of the trip. And uh, I think that the race started 10 days after we started. And we were out past McGrath, we'd only gone about 300 miles in 10 days. They caught up with us in three days. <laughs> So we had a chance to look at their dogs and, and compare our dogs with their dogs. It probably took them five days for all of them to get past us. 
And uh, I remember the last one, I'm probably not going to remember her name right now, Corella, Rody Corella maybe. And here comes the last dog team out on the Yukon. And we had stopped for tea and we're listening to this little radio. And here it was the finish was going on 500 miles away in Nome. And it was Susan Butcher coming in to win. And <laughs> Rody Corella heard that on the radio and said, God darn it, I'm going to get going. <laughs> I don't want to be last. Well, I guess he caught up with a few people, but then they dropped out. So it ended up, she, she got the Red Lantern anyway, because everybody she passed dropped out behind her. <laughs> yeah, and we got to see how, how the racers handle their teams. And it was totally different than what we were doing, because we, we had, uh, at all times, I don't know, 150 pounds of stuff in our each sled, and hauling, hauling our food from village to village. But it was still fun to meet them and talk, get to talk to some of these racers along the trail. When we got to know them, then uh, some of them were still there and uh, told us, oh, there's a race going up to Kotzebue, you ought to just follow that. So, oh, okay. <laughs> At that time, they had the uh, bypass mail, so we could call Fairbanks to the feed store. We were, we were working with Cold Spot Feed then on this. Hey, send hundred pounds of food up to Teller. We're going to continue on. And then uh, we got, got to know him, decided to be, we'd go through Candle instead. So, so then we sent a postcard to the postmaster and Teller and said, hey, would you forward that over to Candle? And they all cooperated with us. It was pretty, pretty amazing. So we didn't, have, of course, carry food the whole way. But uh, once we got up to Candle, we're in the, on the village trails. And they're not marked like the Iditarod Trail, so you could maybe get on the wrong trail, you're not sure. But, but there was trails from every village on to the next one. Because you know, a lot of people related in the different villages, they go to visit, and that's how they travel up there. No roads at all. I mean, we went 500 miles, never saw a road, you know, until you get to some bigger town on the coast. So we ended up following it, this uh, village circuit of trails all the way over to Huslia, which is on the Koyukuk River. And there were trails continued on up. Uh, we call it the Whiskey Trail because <laughs> all those trails went to Bettles, which had the only liquor store within 150 to 200 miles. And uh, they, we'd see whiskey bottles stuck on bushes that were like marking the trail. <laughs> <laughs> Once we got to Bettles, talked to people and said, oh yeah, you can continue to the coast. There's not that much snow up here. So we went on up to uh, Anaktuvik Pass, is where the upper river, you know, where it starts, and stayed there with the school teachers. And they said, oh yeah, there's no trail, but there's not much snow. So we went right right on down to the coast to New Exit. Uh, in New Exit, we were starting to get low on food, but the word got around, oh, there's two dog teams passing through. We met a guy who was married to the mayor of the town. <laughs> he said, oh, you camp in my yard. I got a lot of room. So this uh, one morning, a fellow drives up in a Suburban completely full of boxes of different types of meat. And there was a lot of whale blubber, some caribou, he said, I've got all this meat. I'm not going to be able to keep it frozen through the winter. This is not really the, 
the part that we would eat anyway ourselves. So give it to your dogs. Okay. We just loaded the sleds up. And dogs really liked the whale blubber. That was tasty to them. The only thing they wouldn't eat, we found, was seal that still had the fur on it. Texture. <laughs> yeah, texture. <laughs> I think they had a hard time swallowing that coarse, coarse furry hair that's on a uh, seal skin. But that, you know, every time we'd get to a village, people were really friendly like that. Would offer us things and offer to, yeah, stay, stay at my place. And we got to see, I think, 26 different villages along that trip. And what an eye-opener. I mean, you know, we went 2,400 miles, I think, and took about 76 days. We finally got to Prudhoe Bay, and snow was really getting skimpy. This was getting into May. So we turned and followed the pipeline back as far as Anaktubik Pass, or uh, Adigan Pass. And we kind of looked at Adigan Pass and said, ah, I don't think the dogs are going to be able to go over that because all, all you could do is run it right in the road with the big trucks. So ended up uh, hitchhiking with the trucker, <laughs> just myself, back to get their pickup. I wanted you to tell me it was you and the dogs. <laughs> no, not the dogs. As we went along on that trip, though, I, we kept thinking about what if, what if we run out of snow here and we can't continue? And we were always asking about planes because all the villages get freight delivered on fairly big planes. We could have flown out with all the dogs if we'd had to. Plan B. Plan B. Well, so that, that gave me two insights into two things. You know, the village life and bush life, is, it's so intriguing. And, and very generous. Very generous and very interesting. People were so surprised to see a dog team passing through because, you know, there just weren't that many dog teams left. Everybody had snow machines. And uh, so we decided, okay, maybe this racing could be interesting. And uh, I think 89 was the first year uh, I talked Linda into trying the quest. Talk about how the Yukon quest differs from the Iditarod. Well, the Iditarod is, uh, you know, in a warmer time of year, for one thing. It's in March. The quest is in February and goes through all the interior country where it can really be cold. I mean, it gets cold in the Iditarod too, but once they hit the coast in the Iditarod, it's warmer, they gotta deal with wind, but it's not gonna be 50 below the whole way. So the quest, it also, at that time when it started, there was one section you had to go 240 miles between checkpoints. Where Iditarod, I think the longest uh, stretch like that might be 100 miles or so. So that meant you had to carry a lot more food least two days of, of food there and you're going to feed them every 12 hours a big meal so our dogs were better suited for that they were used to camping uh, because on those long stretches you usually wouldn't have straw for them to lay on so they needed to be a little more furry you know and a little stronger and uh, they just had to be used to sleeping on snow which is what we did with them when we were freighting in the park. So, so our dogs were, were really psyched for this, really, really up for it. Uh, I remember Linda's first race there in 89 started in Whitehorse, and her team was so excited she could barely hold on to them. And uh, the Quest Trail, <laughs> this is another difference from my dead ride, the Quest Trail went through some areas where there wasn't a real good established trail. 
And some places you'd get on, she got on ice and it was like a ping pong bashing into trees. And lost the team at one time, another musher picked her up. And that musher's headlight had gone out. So he had Linda sitting there with her headlight on, keep, <laughs> keeping them illuminating the trail. <laughs> so this was a race that our dogs could excel at and that Linda was really good at this. Her dogs just loved her and she treated them really good. And she was lightweight, about 130 pounds at that time. Had mushed enough, she really knew how to take care of the dogs. And she just loved it until she got to checkpoints and had to interact with reporters or something. But And she ended up that year, I believe, in eighth place, which is pretty darn good out of 40 teams. Amazing. Yeah. And that kind of gave her the confidence and got me interested, too, in doing it. So the second year, we each took a team and uh, raced together for the first half. And then my team kind of slowed down because we let the best of our own dogs go with Linda. And I borrowed some from local mushers here like Bruce Lee and Jeff King. So I had a good team, but not quite as strong as Linda's. She beat me by 24 hours. But I always tell people, but she had the better dogs. Out of, she had the selection of the best dogs. And that got us both interested. So we tried that again the, the second year. And uh, I kind of realized maybe I'm not as cut out for this multi-day, you know, day after day. Because I could not settle down and get enough sleep to feel rational when, <laughs> when we were moving. Everything was so exciting. It was hard to just stop thinking when, and get some sleep. Plus, you get to checkpoints and try to go in and sleep, and they have it 110 degrees, and they're thinking you're going to want a real warm room. You know, <laughs> you'd rather sleep outside than at 110. So on our racing regimen, we decided that I would run shorter races, like the mid-distance, they call it, 200 to 300 milers. And uh, one in particular was the Copper Basin that's over in Glen Allen. We go from Glen Allen uh, through the backcountry up to Paxson area, and then they'd loop back into Glen Allen. And uh, that, I thought, was a great race because you go the first 50, 60, 70 miles and then have a restart. So it gave the dogs a chance. You just had a certain amount of time to go that distance, and then the dogs would settle into the routine and then they'd start again with a mass restart out on a big lake or something and that's always exciting everybody trying to take off at once so i did that and uh, i think the first year i might have been eighth and the second year i was fourth oh wow the dogs are doing okay at this and uh, the third year i actually won congratulations could, yeah couldn't believe it that's the only race that i've ever won and uh, it was exciting for me because of the people who were in the race, you know, behind me. Martin Boozer finished 20 seconds behind me. I saw him and I heard him whistling at his dogs. He's got a loud whistle to whistle them up to speed up. I told him you should get a silent whistle because I heard you coming. That made me start running. <laughs> <laughs> and he, you know, he was in that race a lot too. And had a record for always finishing second. And it was, for guys like Martin, you know, Jeff King went over there one year, a couple years maybe, and uh, other sort of almost professional Iditarod mushers, they'd go over there with the 
a, as a training run. So they weren't there really trying to win, like I was actually. And uh, so that 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 was an interesting race that I did probably ten times, and I would be able to take young dogs, yearlings even. So it's their second year of running, and they'd never been on a race before. And I'd take two or three of them, and then see if, if they did well, then Linda would have them that she could select for her quest team. You know, and the quest was about a month after the Copper Basin race. So they'd have time to recover from the Copper Basin, and she'd have her team of 12 or 14 dogs. And she ended up doing that six times, and uh, Top 10 every time. I think her best finish was third in uh, 1994. She was pretty close to Lavon Barbie won that year, who was an Iditarod racer. Phenomenal. Yeah, so racing, it's a whole different type of dog mushing that you have to learn. Really, the dog care is so important. When we were freighting, we'd only run 20 miles a day, and they could take care of their own feet pretty much. So we didn't have to have booties all the time. But we found out in racing, you've got to have booties on all the time. You know, unless they get, well, and if they do get wet, you got to change them. Uh, because their, their feet collect snow. And then they get little rubs in there. And then they don't want to run as well when, when their feet hurt, of course. And the whole feeding is so different when you're racing. You feed them so much more. It's just an incredible amount of food that they go through high calories, 10,000 calories a day maybe, uh, and you've got to keep them eating. Well, so something that went along with this, having the, all these dogs and wanting to race and have good food, we were kind of realized how expensive dog, good quality dog food is. So something we were both interested in was fish camp. Uh, if you can find a place where you can catch salmon, uh, and it's still legal this way as long as there's salmon in the river you can get subsistence salmon and use it as for yourself and as dog food uh, and, and Linda was really interested in the Kantishna River which is uh, headwaters are out in the Kantishna area of the park and then it runs down and comes out uh, down below Ninana about 70 miles on into the Tanana and as luck would have it the uh, state opened up a remote staking area there, so we were able to take, run our dogs out a trail from Ninana about 35 miles and just stake out our own little 15-acre parcel right on the Kantishna River, probably a little too close to the river as we found out because things can flood sometimes, but built a cabin uh, over the course of several springs and falls we'd be there got ourselves set up with a fish wheel and so every fall we'd load up the the boat with uh, maybe 15 dogs per trip and it would take us four or five trips out there to get all the dogs in I'd leave Linda there with the first group of dogs and then I'd come back empty and pick up some more different people might go have gone with me to help you know we found out right away you gotta chain the dogs up in the boat <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that may seem obvious, but you want them all chained up because they don't know. In fact, at first, they don't even know what water is. So we had dogs try to jump out and run on the water. <laughs> 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 and 
some of them almost good. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but we'd have to teach them to calm down. We'd had a chain strung around the edges of the boat inside. They'd uh, have to learn to lay down and right next to their neighbor and not hassle anybody. And they kind of they just went with the vibration of the boat, kind of got them relaxed, I think, and they'd go to sleep. And then every time we'd slow down, they'd all perk, stick their head up, look around. What's it? Are we there Are yet? We there? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, this was about a five-hour trip, because it's 100 miles, you know, 75 miles or 70 miles down the Tanana and then 30 miles up the Kantishna. And it, all kinds of things can happen. I was sunk by a, a river barge once time. I didn't anticipate how big the waves can be from those barges that are loaded up with tons of stuff. And uh, the boat ended up upside down, me swimming. Luckily, no dogs in the boat that time, just supplies. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so, learned to navigate the river. And, uh, you know, once out there, the appeal there was you could catch salmon, and sometimes two, three thousand salmon over the course of, you know, a month, uh, five weeks that we could fish before it would freeze up. We'd split them right in half with a big knife and then hang them inside out over poles so they had fresh air on them and they'd start to dry. And then eventually it gets cold enough they would freeze up and be, be fine. And then maybe the last hundred salmon we'd catch, we could just stack up like cordwood and let them freeze. And there'd be a, a little kind of a probiotic uh, bacterial action going inside them. And we, they'd get really smelly. <laughs> In fact, we called them stink fish. But then we'd slice them up after they'd frozen with a bandsaw. And they, those were just the favorite food the dogs wanted to eat. You'd thaw that out in a cook pot and it would just stink to high heaven. Ruin all your gloves and your clothes. <laughs> but the dogs would just suck that down. That sand, that, you know, salmon is mostly water anyway. So if we were able to, you know, that fish eggs, uh, we'd dry the fish eggs and save them. The funniest thing, we tried to cook the fish eggs with the fish at first. And we had a, an oil barrel that we cut the bottom third out of it and strung that up like a big pot. So it's probably 20 gallons of water and fish. We put the fish in there nose down so they wouldn't burn. <laughs> So their tails are standing up out of the barrel. <laughs> and then light a big fire under it and throw some rice in at the end that would add some bulk to the to the fish. And at first we would have the eggs in there and we'd put a big bowl of that in front of the dogs and boy, they'd love eating it. But they didn't want to eat the eggs for some reason. <laughs> and they'd be eating as fast as they can out of that bowl, then they pull, pull their head up and start spitting out the eggs, just like a kid spitting out peas. <laughs> we figured out, okay, they're going to waste the eggs, so let's just save the eggs and freeze them, and then they would eat them later when they were frozen, like a snack along the trail. Oh, wow. You know, so we used every, every bit of the, you know, the guts were still in the fish, because that's nutritious too. The only thing we cut off was some of the bigger salmon really have huge teeth. And uh, we didn't think that was the best thing going through the dog's gut, you know, if it was still attached to the fish. So we'd, 
whack off the, the fish right at the end of their snout, you know, big snaggle tooths. And they'd catch on your gloves and rip your gloves apart and cut your fingers. <laughs> so that was our fall. Probably sensing here we were developing this life that was completely dogs, just revolves around the dogs every whole season. So that was our fall season. And then being out there on this river, the river would freeze up earlier than here at Healy, and we could start training. And if we were on a slough there that's about 10 miles long. A slough is a small channel where the water would get very low, so there was no danger of falling through into deep water. And we would put a, first hook them on a four-wheeler and teach them to go through water, because we could run down the silt banks on the side, make a water crossing, and the water would only be six to eight inches deep. But dogs have to learn this because they're, they're afraid of, they can't see how deep it's going to be. Well, we got them used to it because we had 15 water crossings <laughs> each direction, <laughs> just back and forth. And boy, they would really learn to, to pull through water, not be afraid of it. And they'd learn to take directions because they re started to realize you're telling them something when you say G. Or, you know, turn right, haw, turn left. They're starting to figure out there's a reason he's saying this. And uh, the only problem was they almost got too used to the water because then we would start training out on the main river, which is deep and dangerous. Just frozen up, there's places that are still open water. And I figured out, oh, they don't know that that water is deep. And one time a family of river otters came out of the brush because they heard a dog team coming, ran across the ice and dove into a pool of water and were gone. And of course the dog team wanted to chase them. <laughs> and you know, I had to break down as hard as I could, ice flying off of the off of the brake and finally got that leader to turn, get back on the trail and not chase those river otters right into the river. You know, so that was where we could start our training and by mid-November, the rivers would freeze, and we'd be listening to Trapline Chatter, which is the uh, radio program in North Pole. And there's another one in Ninana called the Mucklucks, Muckluck Messages. Uh, and in Ninana, it's KIM AM radio broadcast these messages. So we would listen to people because we didn't have any communication at that time, you know, this was before satellite phones were available or anything else. So we'd listen to messages every night and get a feeling for who was traveling on the rivers and when the rivers were starting to freeze. And we had a, a friend, Miles Martin, if he was back in Ninana at the time, he would always send us a message and say, yeah, the Ninana River's frozen, you can come in now. <laughs> because the, of course, the Ninana River comes comes into the town and are right at the town of Ninana. And for us, once the rivers freeze, it was a 35 mile run on a trail back to Ninana. So we didn't want to get to Ninana and find that river. And this happened to me once. I'd gone 35 miles and I get there and the river's open. Well, it had opened back up. Oh no. Well, luckily I'd left early in the morning. And the dogs didn't seem to realized what was happening when I gave him a snack and just turned around. <laughs> we're like, okay, we know where we're going. We're headed back home. So we ended up doing a 70-mile run very early in the season. 
I figured, oh boy, these guys are in shape. You know, we could be thinking about this when we're racing too, you know, maybe they can do these distances early. After that, I was more careful to be sure that <laughs> the rivers were frozen there because I didn't want to camp out overnight in the sled. <laughs> that can be dangerous. Uh, well, I ran the, the uh, Coldfoot 300 one year and uh, my team was very slow that year. And this is the type of race that I like to do is shorter, shorter racing. But this is up, you know, way up the Dalton Highway by Coldfoot Camp up there where uh, Dick Mackey owned a truck stop at the time. And he would put that race on even though the Park Service didn't give him permission to. You know, they weren't sure they wanted this sort of thing in a national park with prizes and, you know, people, What's a, what are these dogs going to do? I don't know. So he would just conveniently uh, arrange for somebody had to take something up to Anaktubik Pass from Coldfoot and, you know, just coincidentally make a trail for this dog race. But you would leave on this race and quickly realize there are no markers at all. Most races are marked at least at the least every mile. You have a, a wooden stake with reflectors on it. So you know you're on the right trail and you can get confused. Well, the Coldfoot, they didn't, Park Service didn't want any of these markers in their park. And uh, so you got up in these hills and boy, where the heck are we? And you, it's hard packed snow. You can't see tracks of other teams very well or snow machines. I ended up there in the dark and not sure that my leader was, you know, a leader can sense by smell and feel of the trail that other teams have been on the trail. I just had to trust, trust that leader, his name was Tiger, to just stay with the trail. You know, he had all this, you could literally go anywhere because it's hard packed snow. And eventually I got up on a high spot and I could see a glow way in the distance and it was the lights of Anaktubik Pass, this little town. Finally got there out of the wind. It had been so windy going up the uh, Ernie Creek, it's called. It comes off the North Fork of the Koyukuk. It was so windy that dogs were just getting blown backwards. Dog teams that weren't used to ice were, were just giving up. Uh, famous mushers like Rick Swenson were in this race and were crawling across ice trying to lead the the dogs across it without getting blown over it. <laughs> and this again was a was a time when it paid that I had dogs that had been in the park without a trail. To them it wasn't a big deal. Oh, we're gonna break trail, okay. We're gonna be on ice, you know, that was standard for going to Wonder Lake. Now, I didn't do that well in finishing in the race, but I did finish. And uh, pretty slowly though, because we had Again, done a long trip that same year. We had mushed all the way to Coldfoot from Osceola. My gosh. <laughs> I called Dick Mackey from Galena, I think, is where we left the Iditarod Trail. We're going to follow the village trail on up the Koyukuk, and he could barely hear me on this payphone. He said, You're where? <laughs> and you're mushing here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're in Galena. <laughs> We'll see you in a week or two. <laughs> yeah, so we had adventures racing and just traveling was so fun uh, between the villages like that and then started to combine these things. But then after 94, we kind of decided maybe we've done enough of this uh, 
the quest race that we see. You know, these races start to beat you up. And we were both getting to be in our 40s there. You start feeling your knees hurt and your ankles hurt because all that time of riding the brake. Jeff King hadn't invented the Barca lounger yet. You know, that's the sled that has a, a nice seat built on the back of it. And we didn't think of that, so <laughs> it was tough standing up for a thousand miles on the back of a sled, you know, kicking and pushing along. So we quit racing, but continued with, to have dogs until 2006 and continued to do the, the Kantishna River fishing. You know, there were years when, when they would shut down the fishing, like this year, when there were just not enough fish in the river and you got to conserve what there is so that they will spawn. And we really learned what a big deal that is to the people that live out there all the time. I mean, for us, I mean, we could come back in and buy dog food, but it's a, it's a real life and death situation for them. And villages like Ruby and Tananaw all up and down the Yukon. And I guess they're having that trouble this year with just no fish. Make sure to tune in next week for part two of this interview when Will takes us into the wild. Denali 360 is a production of Denali 360 LLC. Interviews are edited by Josiah Robinson. Podcast artwork designed by Daniel Karapedian. Theme song written and recorded by Jonathan and Brooke East. Special content and sponsorship recorded by James Rio. I am your host, Nova Cunningham. For more information on Denali Park, Alaska, go to Denali360.com. Mm-hmm.